continuing our study of America and God. We have this morning's lesson and we have one more lesson in this series. This morning we want to talk specifically about religion and morality. The entire foundation for America's successful political existence was given by George Washington and it was a part of his farewell address. He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. The men who founded our nation felt that religion and morality were indispensable. They felt that religion and morality were necessary for political prosperity, for good government, and for national well-being. You see, here's the thing. Self-governing nations are built upon self-governing individuals. And self-government or self-discipline can only be achieved and is only achieved when people practice morality. And our founders felt our documents of government were insufficient to govern immoral, irreligious citizens. And we see that played out in our world today. Here's how President John Adams put it. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. As I said, we have seen the proof of that in our own day, in our own time. We're seeing the proof of that at this very hour. Our government is riddled with scandal after scandal, with corruption, with dishonesty, with bribery, chicanery, and every other thing you can imagine. Truth and honesty are virtually unknown by many people in very high positions of government. And the sad truth of the matter is this. There are many in our day and time who subscribe to the principles of Joseph Goebbels. You know who Joseph Goebbels was? There are people that prefer his principles to the principles of the Bible. Paul Joseph Goebbels was a German politician. He was the Reich Minister of Propaganda in Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1945. He was one of Adolf Hitler's closest associates and most devoted followers. Here's one of his most famous quotes. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent. 
For the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus, by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Does that not sound like some of what is going on even in our country today? Does that not sound like the attitude of some who would hold to aspire to the highest office? Remember what we said in this class a few weeks ago. The basic morality of those running for office is important. Those who will lie will steal. And those who will steal will lie. And in those who hold public office, we must demand honesty. In those that hold public office, whether it's county judge, county commissioner, whether it's secretary of state in the state or the nation, or whether it's governor or lieutenant governor or whoever it is, those who hold public office, we must demand from them honesty. We must demand basic morality, basic ethics. And those are attributes that are missing. Those are attributes that are absent. Those are attributes that are unknown to many politicians in our world today. Remember that the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. But did signing that declaration actually make America a free and independent nation? No, it did not. There was still a long and costly conflict that had to be fought with the superpower of that day. America had only a ragtag army, and it was an army that was poorly paid if they were paid at all. They were an army that had few, if any, uniforms. The weapons they had were often whatever they were able to bring from home. And if they had any cannons, they were cannons they had taken from the British in conflict. And the soldiers often had to survive without adequate food and shelter. By contrast, this ragtag army faced one of the most feared armies in the world. The British troops were the best trained and best equipped army of that day. Other nations looked on this conflict and doubted that these colonial soldiers would ever succeed. Few doubted that these freedom fighters would prevail, but they did. And one of the reasons they prevailed was they had a secret weapon. A secret weapon so powerful that even King George feared it. And that secret weapon was a powerful brigade of soldiers that Britain referred to as the Black Regiment. They were a powerful force for the cause of freedom. And they were such a powerful force for the cause of freedom that before the revolution started, the British governor of Massachusetts made the statement that if this black regiment ever came out in force to support the revolution, England would lose. So what was this black regiment? Or more correctly termed, the black-robed regiment. And what was it about them that made Britain so fearful of it? Does anyone know 
who the black-robed regiment was? It did not refer to a literal regiment of soldiers that wore black robes. It rather referred to the influential clergymen who promoted American independence. It was the preachers who supported the military struggle against Britain. These ministers helped muster critical support among members of their congregations. And this support of the patriot cause was considered to be vital to maintaining resistance to Britain. These ministers, from their pulpits, reassured their audiences that their revolution was justified in the sight of God. It was critical to win and maintain the support of the population in the war for independence. And the black regiment, the black-robed regiment, were the preachers throughout the colonies. And their weapon was the Bible, and their battlefield was the pulpit. And it was their moral leadership that enabled America to become a free and independent nation. These preachers preached what they preached because they believed that the very essence of Christian religion was the idea that liberty is a sacred gift from God and that the United Colonies of America had been chosen by God to guard the sacred lamp of liberty. And so resistance to England became a sacred duty. A duty to a people who were on the whole a highly religious people. And they were led in their resistance to the tyranny of England by their preachers. It was a preacher named Jonathan Mayhew who observed that England imposed heavy taxes on the colonies without allowing them to be represented in the parliament. And so, Jonathan Mayhew coined the phrase that became a battle cry for the revolution. No taxation without representation. It was a Presbyterian minister named John Witherspoon who preached on the similarities between the bondage of Israel in Egypt and the bondage the colonies suffered under England. You might know Witherspoon's name. He was one of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Samuel Cooper was a Congregationalist minister who actively preached on the revolution to an audience that often included John Adams, Samuel Adams, Joseph Warren, and John Hancock. Most of the men who led our nation into war in 1776 were influenced by this black-robed regiment. The black-robed regiment laid the foundation for our nation to become a free country. And even after the war was over, they continued to lay the foundation for our country. And with their influence, America became the powerful and great nation that it is today. What was the foundation that they laid? 
It was a foundation of repentance and humility. They preached that if God's people continually humbled themselves and sought God's guidance, God would bless their nation and America would continue to be a great country. They knew the well, the passage in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. They did not, however, just preach that the colonies needed to rise up against England. They also preached that the colonists needed to spend time in fasting and in prayer. And if they failed to do this, they would fail. They also believed it was time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And that was their message in the beginning. And that continues to be a message for America today. The church's job is to always call people to repentance. The church's job is to remind people that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God, however, has always called His people to confront their leaders with the need for righteousness. John the Baptist confronted Herod about his immoral, unlawful marriage to Herodias. Jesus confronted the Pharisees about their unbridled hypocrisy. Peter confronted the Sanhedrin about their role in crucifying Christ. Jesus said that we need to be the light and the salt in a dark, foul-tasting world. The church has been called to stand for God's holiness in an unholy world. We have been called to stand for righteousness in an unrighteous world. Does that give you some indication why there are some secular progressive politicians in our own day and time doing everything within their power to close churches and find excuses to close churches and hope to finally bring the death knell for the church in America? For nearly 200 years, the church stood for righteousness in an unrighteous world. Then in 1954, a senator from the great state of Texas changed all of that. A man by the name of Lyndon Baines Johnson. You might know him better as Landslide Lyndon. He earned that nickname in his 1948 Senate election against Coke Stevenson when he won that election by a mere 87 votes that were found miraculously in Duval County. Very, very late. Hmm. Johnson was the Senate Minority Leader. And in 1954, he passed an amendment to the tax code. That amendment to the tax code in 1954 is known to this day as the Johnson Amendment. Because you see, there were preachers in pulpits and there were religious groups actively opposing Johnson in his 
bid to be, to be re-elected to the Senate. And so Johnson's objective with the Johnson Amendment to the tax code in 1954, his objective was to silence his political opponents. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And anyone else who sought to expose him for the fraud that he was. And his amendment threatened non-profit organizations like churches who would attempt to speak out against politicians such as himself. And that same Johnson Amendment of 1954 serves till this day to threaten the church if it dares to speak out against corrupt, dishonest, crooked, immoral politicians in our own day and time. You can look it up. Our founders believed that Christianity produced public morality. They believed that religion in general and Christianity in particular produced public morality. And without this public morality, civil government would not survive in their opinion. With this in mind, they created, they neither created nor tolerated Catch that? They did not create, nor did they tolerate, any acts that would diminish Christianity. To have done this would have been to invite the demise of good government. The overall effects of religion on a society were well understood by our founders. And there were also specific Benefit, benefits of Christianity enumerated by the founders. Here's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. The precepts of philosophy and of the Hebrew code laid hold of actions only. Jesus pushed his scrutinies into the heart of man, erected his tribunal in the region of his thoughts, and purified the waters at the fountainhead. According to Jefferson, Christian principles, unlike those of other religions, went beyond merely addressing and attempting to regulate or restrain outward behavior. Take murder, for example. Murder is prohibited by civil law. But unlike civil statutes, Christianity addresses murder before it ever occurs. Christianity addresses murder while it is still only a thought in the heart. Civil laws cannot address the heart. John Quincy Adams, son of John Adams, served not only as a president but also as a representative and as a senator. And here is a quote from John Quincy Adams as to why this assistance from Christianity was so necessary to civil government. Human legislators can undertake only to prescribe the actions of men. They acknowledge their inability to govern and direct the sentiments of the heart. The very law styles it a rule of civil conduct 
not of internal principles. It is one of the greatest marks of divine favor that the legislator gave them rules not only of actions, but for government of the heart. You see, hating someone. To hate is not legally a crime. But it often leads to a crime, such as assault or even murder. Now, you may not have noticed it, and you may have noticed it. But our nation has descended into a moral quagmire. You can't pray in school. Christian people have lost their jobs because they talk to other people on the job about Jesus Christ. Christian people have lost their jobs because they let it be known that they don't approve of certain lifestyles. Homosexuality has become one of the great problems facing our nation. As an acceptable alternative lifestyle, it's become more prevalent. Equal rights are granted to practice and promote this lifestyle. And we now have gay churches, gay priests, and gay ministers in mainstream religious groups. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that homosexuality led to the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what about abortion? In its simplest terms, the way that many in the political realm, abortion is nothing more than a woman's right to choose and the termination of a pregnancy before birth. Now, the pure definition is that Abortion is termination of a pregnancy before birth, resulting in the death of the fetus. Now, to my mind, that's too clinical. Being just a simple country preacher, in my mind, that's not shocking enough. Abortion is the termination of a pregnancy that results in the death of a baby. Oh, but it's a right to choose. According to a statistical analysis that I read, 1% of women have an abortion because of rape or incest. 6% of abortions occur because of a potential health problem for the mother of the unborn child. 93% of abortions are performed because of social reasons. Either the child is unwanted or it's an inconvenient point in this person's life to have a child. Hmm. America must return to God. One of the most meaningful passages of Scripture ever written was David's first song. And it's, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law doth he meditate both day and night, and so forth. Well, let me take the liberty of a slight adaptation of that first psalm. Blessed is the nation that walketh not in the counsel of the wicked, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scoffers. But its delight is in the law of Jehovah. And on his law doth it meditate day and night. And this nation shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water, 
that bringeth forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also doth not wither, and whatsoever it doeth shall prosper. The wicked nations are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the wicked nations shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Jehovah knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Just think how true those statements are when they're applied to the nations of mankind. Now let me hasten to say this. God did not make a mistake when he caused David to write that psalm in the singular. Because nations are made up of individual people. And you cannot make a nation righteous apart from making the individual citizenry righteous. And changing the direction of America will not be done on some grand scale or in some great convention. And changing the direction of America will not come about through the passing of new laws. We already have too many laws that are not being enforced even now. Changing the direction of America will only come as we change the individual citizens of the nation. That's the hope of America. Individuals are the hope of this nation. America's great hope is for individuals, people, one at a time, to dedicate our lives to the Lord and then challenge others to come and go along with us as we go God's way. Our time is gone. Until we're together again, may the Lord richly bless and keep you, is our prayer in Jesus' name.